This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And deputy editor of tabletmag.com, Stephanie Butnick. Oh, hello. Today on the show, we're going supremo primo Gentile, our Gentile of the Week, taking up the whole interview block straight out of North Dakota. Gentile of the Week, Chuck Klosterman. He's one of my favorite pop culture critics. He sort of, he began as a pop music critic and then transcended that. And now he's just a critic of everything. There's nothing he won't criticize. And his new book, which is marvelous, is called The 90s. And it's his master treatise on the decade that formed yours truly, if none of this is appealing to you right now, listen anyway, because we will win you over to our geek fest, our love, our ode to the 90s. You like how I'm calling it our ode as if I've co-opted his book? Before we get to all that good stuff, let's have some good stuff from the Upper West. Uh, how are things at Butnick North, Stephanie Butnick? Things are great here. Baby Edith Cohen is six and a half months. She's really, really cool. She just learned this week how to yell. She just yells mm. things now. Not when she's not mad. She's just she's sort of like a little bird. Uh, she squawks a lot. She's great. But so hold on. It just occurred to me, like hearing you say this, that the things that she is learning now, there will never again be a period in her life or the life of any other human being in which we learn things that are as freaking consequential as the stuff that she's learning now. Like she learned to yell. When yeah. was the last time that you learned anything nearly as remarkable as that? And she's very clearly like experimenting with her voice. Like she's making different sounds. It's like wonderment is her state of mind right now, her state of being. But I haven't even told you what I want to tell you, which is that I feel like five years of podcasting has uniquely prepared me to read books to Edith. <laughs> okay, explain this to me. Because you're basically narrating an audiobook every single night. And yes, that audiobook may be time for bed, where, by the way, all the animals tell their baby animals that it's time for bed, and there's like some nice little rhyme that they do. Blah, blah, black sheep, brought to you by Harry's. Harry's, a great shave and a great price. <laughs> Can I tell you where my mind went when you said that podcasting had prepared you for book reading? This is this is dark, and this says so much about me. So one of my great gifts is that, and, and you will develop it too, I, th I think most parents have developed it, but some just don't admit it, is that I can read an entire children's book aloud and not just the ones for six month and one-year-olds, but I can read like a four-year-old's book aloud. So I can read a whole chapter book aloud without actually knowing what's going on because I actually am doing other work in my head. I'm thinking about the next day. I'm thinking about what I'm going to write. I'm thinking about an application I have to get in for a grant or whatever. But I can read the words to the book with perfect inflection. Even like if I see an exclamation point, my voice knows to do surprise. While my brain has no idea who the characters in the book are, no idea what the plot is, I can totally check out of the plot. And as a result, there are books I've read hundreds of times and I don't know what happens in them. And I was thinking that you were saying, this is exactly where my mind went. It's like the way that I can just sit here with a smile on my face, listening to you two guys go on <laughs> and periodically interject a, uh-huh, totally. Being like, what groceries do I need? <laughs> yes, Chuck. Yes, Chuck. That's an excellent point. The 90s was a, was a decade. In fact, it was a decade. Yes. What I really meant was just that like, it's hard to get used to hearing your voice. And I've gotten used to hearing my voice on a podcast. For example, there's it's time for bed, a little calf, little calf. This is a cow talking to its child, the calf. By the way, knowing what baby animals are called too, that's a skill you get as a baby and never, mm. never need again. Well, no, you do need again because you order them from time to time. <laughs> it's time for bed, little calf, little calf. What happened today that made you laugh? And so I've spent a lot of time, each time I read it, I do it differently. I think it's actually what happened today that made you laugh or what happened today that made you laugh? I really like to like play with it each time. You're such a good mom. And oh God, thank you. you know, I mean this, you're a good mom in so many ways, but I mean thank this you. in a very specific way, which is 
I don't judge other parents. I don't judge how they, what they feed their kids or how much screen time they give their kids. Are you sure? Or if, well, okay, I do sometimes, <laughs> but I don't talk about how I judge other parents. But, but one thing that I actually am very open about is if you're a parent who doesn't ham it up a little bit when you read children's books to your kids, who won't be a little silly when reading children's books, I think that's terrible. Um, I get so into these books. I'm like a bad parody of a Hollywood actor who needs to know like the backstory and the motivation of every character. First of all, it's a voice for every character. And sometimes like I kind of mess them up in my head because I forget who had what crazy accent. And at some point, uh-huh. you know, my kids would look at me like, can you just please freaking read the book? Like we don't need the whole like stage production. We don't need like a cast of characters. We don't need the, a cast of thousands in this thing. Just, you know, freaking read the story. The story's good. Someone with talent wrote the story. It's up to you to just convey the words the nice person said, well, not your interpretation. This is David Mamet, right? Who says that if you just read his words accurately, the play will basically perform itself. That, that he wants the least possible input. I think I'm getting his theory right. That he wants the least possible directorial and actor's input. That his words are made to do the work if you just get them right. Correct. But the other day I was, I was reading Mercy Watson to, to Hudson, who, who loves oh, these, the these pig. books. The pig, and there's a character of a of a very sort of spirited burglar. His name is Leroy Ninker, and he's this like diminutive little guy who only robs houses because he can't fulfill his real life dream of being like a Gene Autry type singing cowboy, which is really great. And I'm really into that guy, and really sort of enunciate and have like the whole kind of really bad accent going on. For him. <laughs> and at some point, Hudson just you know. Much like Edith, just put his hand in the book and said, please stop. <laughs> just <laughs> do just less. The words are good. Can you do less? Look, while we're picking nits here, I have an issue with Time for Bed by Mem Fox. I, by the way, begin, at the beginning, I was reading the copyright page of all the books just to get some like extra content. But now Edith's a more discerning listener. Here's the one that, do, that I don't like. So there's this Time for Bed little foal, little foal. I'll whisper a secret, which you whisper, and but don't tell a soul. So there's the foal, there's the calf. Like it's all about the baby animals. And then there's, it's time for bed, little cat, little cat. So snuggle in tight. That's right. Like that. So I'm like, why can't you say kit? Like, I know it's for the rhyme scheme, but I'm like, you literally have just told me what a foal is and what a calf is. And now you're going to say cat. Totally inconsistent. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. News of the Jews. I'd like to start with some pop culture. So here's what I got. Novelist Joyce Carol Oates, the world's most prolific novelist, also the world's most prolific tweeter. And she tweeted out last week this, and I will I will read it verbatim. The tweet sent February 2nd at 11.59 a.m. When I was first married to my, parenthesis, Jewish husband, two Jewish women friends of mine took me aside and said with wry smiles, quote, welcome to the club, unquote. Soon, I knew what they meant. To which all of Jewish Twitter said, what did they mean? (laughs) What? So then she replies to this tweet with a photo of her husband. And I don't know if this is part of the point. He's bearded. He has these flowing gray locks. He's wearing a very, very, very unbuttoned flannel shirt. He's Liel. He's Liel 10 years from now, basically. He's in the mountains somewhere. He has a camera strapped to him. I don't know what the picture is purporting to explain. In in the words of Rabbeinu Adam Sandler, because we're really good in the sack. I think it was, that's what I took from it. But again, because that guy looked a lot like me, I was like, oh, you mean, you mean because we're manly and irresistible? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's two Jewish women friends of hers took her aside and said with wry smiles, 
welcome to the club. It's as if he was going to introduce to her the Venus butterfly. Leo, you remember the Venus butterfly? How can anyone reared on LA law ever forget? (laughs) Stephanie, do you know what this is? Nope. The Venus butterfly. So there was this TV show in the 90s called LA law, which was awesome. And this was back when there were only three channels and everyone watched the the same shows. So it was real water cooler conversation. And this, there was this Defendant, I think, in a divorce case. You know, it was a, it was a, a legal anthology. Every every week, a different series of cases that the that the law firm was trying. And one of the plot lines one week was this guy who was going through some sort of divorce. I think he had all these ex wives, and they basically agreed that he was a monster and a horrible person. But they stayed with him because he knew how to do the Venus butterfly, and it was obviously some sexual move. But of course, they never disclosed what it is. And all America was talking about. Like USA Today had articles on. What is the Venus butterfly? All America, every fifth grader in, you know, Nofiam Elementary School in Herzliya was like, Maze Venus butterfly trip? de Venus. Maze. I think Joyce Carol Oates' first husband knew the Venus butterfly. Elsewhere in pop culture, cut from that to the reboot of Sex and the City, which Sin and I have been watching because we were huge fans of the original series, which came very early in our courtship and marriage. So now it's like, now we're back to, you know, back to 2005 with the HBO show and Just Like That, which reunites Sarah Jessica Parker and two of her three gal pals on the show. And also brings back the tertiary character of of Harvey Goldenblatt. Harry Goldenblatt. Harry Goldenblatt. Wow. Harry Goldenblatt. Anti-Semitic much? (laughs) Calling him Harvey. Heschel. <laughs> right. Yeah, Heschel Goldenblatt. Hi, me, I think is what it is. <laughs> Abraham Joshua Heschel Goldenblatt. <laughs> who Charlotte York married, and, and that's when she converted to Judaism. I was going to say she converted for him, but that's not how conversion worked. She converted on her own, and it was she was exposed to Judaism by him and came home to Judaism herself. By the way, he did say she had to convert. Let's just be real. In that <laughs> fair enough, fair so enough. So she found it after, you know, he was like, my mom says you have to do it. I remember she was like, but now you brought up the Holocaust, and so I can't say anything. It was one of like, oh, it's perfect. Anyway, I was bothered by the portrayal of Yeheskel, Harvey, Harry, Heshi, Goldenblatt the first time around. And now it only got worse. Dad. What? Mike Kelman, not a good look on a 58-year-old Jew. <laughs> oh, honey, are you okay? I'm okay. I'm okay. <sighs> Just an old Jewish guy trying to play sports. It's sourdough. I made the only sourdough challah in New York City, untapped market. Forty Jews are everywhere. Mm-hmm. What? What's the face? It's hipster challah. We're already pushing the envelope with this they mitzvah. Can we please give the old Jews something they'll recognize? This new reboot of Sex and the City has been, you know, praised, attacked, discussed for having welcomed many characters of color who weren't there before. There are a couple trans characters. And it's been brought into 2022 in so many ways. And yet the portrayal of the one Jewish man has been sent back into some alternative universe of 1967. He basically talks about himself as a sweaty Jew. He'll say things like, you know, how could you even expect me to get on my suit now? I'm just a big sweaty Jew. I've got to go shower. And, you know, how can you expect me to play tennis well and not hit you with my racket? I'm just a big unathletic Jew. And I can't even believe the stuff that's come out of the writer's room there. You guys know me, J. Crew. I'm not somebody who goes hunting for anti-Semitism. I give a lot of passes. I basically think people mean well. And I watch this and I think this is the most tone deaf stuff I've ever seen. I don't know any Jew who talks like that. And I've known a lot of Jews. I'm with you. I'm never the person who's like, this is weird. Like, I have a very, very high threshold for like jokes and things like this. But on a reboot that takes such care to talk about so many things with such sensitivity and in such a great way, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like there's a little bit of laziness with the Jewish stuff. And a few things stuck out to me. You know, there's this like JTA article about how 
Charlotte's friend Anthony, played by Mario Cantone. He brings a date to their Shabbat dinner, and he, like, has some weird thing being like, is this a Jewish dinner? The Holocaust was a hoax. Like, a really weird line, and Anthony says, get out. And this, like, great line that's now, like, a gif that's circulating the internet. And so there's this whole JTA article that people are mad about that. And they're also mad, by the way, because that episode aired on Holocaust Remembrance Day. That didn't even really bother me. That was just sort of, like, a weird thing. But here's the thing. Anthony, in an earlier episode, did something that was so bizarre to me, which was someone goes on a bad date with a guy. He shows up at a party they're at later, and they want him out. And so they say to Anthony, can you deal with him? And he goes, deal with him? What am I? I assumed he was going to say, what am I, the mafia? And he says, what am I, the Mossad? And I'm like, in what world is this yeah. Italian character going to say the Mossad? Right. Who talks about the Mossad? Like, we talk about the Mossad regularly. Like, it was just such a weird thing where None I'm like— None of us has ever been at a party where somebody was asking somebody to, like, 86 a guest— and somebody's like, what am I, the Mossad? It literally has never been said. I have been to parties with actual Mossad agents. <laughs> and literally, they And it. they never said that. <laughs> what are we, the Mossad? Like, yes, Svika, you are the Mossad. Like, oh, okay, so I'll go deal with you. Anyway, so I just feel like it's a world in which I'm suddenly like, oh, there's a little bit of laziness when it comes to the Jewish stuff. It's just so disappointing. Only because But hold on, Stephanie, why do you assume it's laziness and not malice? Because well, I'm sure there's a bunch of Jews in that writing room. Right, who feel, you know, that they need to pay fealties to these. I don't even want to call them progressive because I, I feel that's actually dishonoring a term that I that I think is actually valiant. But I think everywhere you look, you see examples of this. It's a culture that hates Jews, specifically, uniquely, radically hates Jews. If you could have an Amnesty International report, which is an organization I used to really care about and for and give money to, and have the head of that organization sit and say, we literally didn't look at human rights violations anywhere else. We only care about the Jews. They hate us. It should come as a surprise at this point. I I don't think that's wrong, but I but I think, you know, er, not everything is the same thing. And it's not it's not better or worse. In some ways, it's worse. It's more insidious. I just am wondering about the Hollywood writer's room or the New York writer's room where these lines can fly by. I'm, wor- I'm wondering about the person who writes them with a tinge of malice. Then I'm wondering about the sort of embarrassed, self-loathing Jew who doesn't want to be the Jew in the room who says that's not cool. Then I'm wondering about the people who just think it's funny, like, ah, ha, 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 you know, the Holocaust, right? Because that was probably seen as a progressive moment, which was that Anthony throws him out, right? It's like, I'm not going to have, I'm going to throw out this hot date because he's a Holocaust denier. And yet they don't realize, actually, this all looks terrible for everyone. I'm just, it's malice, but married to a kind of current ignorance and stupidity that is, Every bit is worrisome. I agree with that. And and I I don't know. If listeners disagree, hit us up, 914-570-4869. The they mitzvah that ends up happening in the last episode where Charlotte's gender non-binary child is going to have a bat mitzvah, but then it becomes a they mitzvah. And, and, and I like this character. I like Rock. But then the they mitzvah Basically, first of all, is the most over-the-top, disgusting, crass party since the first bat mitzvah party, the one Sam- Samantha was the party planner for 15 years ago in, on Sex of the City. The brat mitzvah. Right, the brat mitzvah, which was horrible and loathsome. And then, not only that, this one doesn't happen in a shul. It happens at the party hall. And they don't read Torah. They don't read Haftar. They don't do anything except that, um, I won't spoil it, but the person who ends up having the celebration reads one blessing for the Aliyah and it's over. Now, you could say, well, maybe more happens off camera, but basically it, it seems to be a 30-second ceremony and then everyone goes to the candy bar. And you really have to wonder, like, we really do need Jewish sensitivity readers in Hollywood now. But 
do you know what the weird thing is? Jews are in the room. Yeah. So there actually is almost something weirder where it's like, why are we joking? Like, and so if you're in the room, you can joke about stuff. But no, you're they're right, not in the room. People who are Jewish in the room, but Jews are not allowed in the room precisely because you've had a brat mitzvah and a they mitzvah, but not a bat mitzvah. R- remind me the last time we had actual portrayal of a normal Jewish communal, cultural, religious, spiritual life on screen. Wonder years. Wonder years. Maybe. 30 years ago, once. Paul Pfeiffer's bar mitzvah was a real thing. No, I agree. Right. Hey, hey, I, you know, I went trying to find them all when I wrote my book about B'nai Mitzvah and they were, they were pretty thin on the ground. They were pretty scarce. Honestly, this is why I've gone full Haredi. I don't watch anymore. I want no part of this culture. I mean this sincerely. This is an anti-Jewish culture. Well, J. Crew, again, please tell us what you think. Call us at 914-570-4869 or email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You can also send us a, uh, a little attachment, a little voice memo to our email account, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We listen to everything and we include what we can. And we love hearing from you. to the mailbox. My ignorance of the old Jewish band Schlockrock piqued the ire of many listeners. They just couldn't believe that I get to sit in this podcasting host's chair when I had never, ever heard of Schlockrock. So we got a couple letters on the topic. Stephanie, would you read the first? Yes. Hi, Unorthodox. I could not believe my ears when I heard Mark say he had never heard of Schlockrock. The moment he mentioned Mobile, Alabama, I half expected him to say, I stepped off the bus in Mobile, Alabama and start singing the opening lyrics to Minion Man. This song was such a staple of my 90s modern Orthodox childhood. It replaced Cats in the Cradle as the ultimate campfire song at Camp Morashah and even became the Shabbos lunch song. Picture 900 Jewish kids standing on wooden benches in the Hadar Ohel, belting out Minion Man, complete with hand movements that go with the lyrics. I loved schlock rock so much, I even talked my parents into bringing them out to Seattle to play my bat mitzvah party. Wow, this is really burying the lead here. Whoa. Lenny Solomon and Eitan G, the from rapper and the whole gang, the kings of schlock. Most of their songs are parody, but Minion Man is original music and my favorite of them all. Shalom from the Pacific Northwest, Jessica. The OG. Jessica's bat mitzvah. Let's hear from people who were there. That is insane. Schlock Rock performing at your bat mitzvah is epic. What was the swag at Jessica's bat mitzvah? <laughs> they danced their pants off and they were probably scrubs. Uh, Leo, you want to take the second letter, taking me to task for my ignorance of Schlock Rock? Hello from Israel. Already love it. I look forward to your podcast drop every Thursday. I listen on my drive into work in the city of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. God bless Baruch Hashem. Your podcast is my weekly dose of American Judaism. Uh, We apologize for that. It's not Target, but connecting to my roots is good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As soon as Mark started playing the clip, three things jumped into my mind. First, he was playing the Maccabees version. Oh my God. Second. Oops. The song brought me back to my years as the educational director at the now-closed Camp Shoshanim, an all-girls modern Orthodox camp that was located in the Poconos. Minion Man, Minion Man, was a regular part of pre-Shabbat Ruach. I'll leave it to you guys to unpack the irony of a room of 300 girls or women singing about waiting for a minion as the staff's husbands and brothers wandered in to start tefillah. Finally, Stephanie said that schlock rock is akin to schoolhouse rock. 
I love that observation. As somebody who grew up Shabbat observant, I had no idea what Schoolhouse Rock was until I was an adult. I had always thought of Schlockrock as a riff on Weird Al Yankovic, the one who really should be Jewish. I appreciate Stephanie's observation. In fact, I have used Schlockrock in my classroom as a Jewish educator many times. Keep on discussing the Jewish world. Rivki Crest. Rivki, thank you so much for this great email. But can I just say, like, keep on discussing the Jewish world? This is like the lyrics Neil Young meant to write. <laughs> keep on discussing the Jewish the world. The Jewish world. Can, can I just say, as in defense of the production staff? Yes, producer Josh. I love correcting Mark Oppenheimer as much as anybody. But I did my research, and that was the version of Minion Man uploaded directly by Lenny himself to YouTube. Oh, snap. I'll also say that I'm really glad that Rifki liked the Schoolhouse Rock thing. I actually considered cutting it because I realized what I meant was that they were like parody songs, but I feel like Schoolhouse Rock did get it wrong, but I'm glad that Rifki thought it was correct because I was worried that I was like incorrect in that assessment. You were wiser than you even know. It's because like you listen to Schoolhouse Rock in regular school and you listen to Schlock Rock in Heap School. <laughs> is Heap School the same as Hebrew School or is it is it where you, you go to learn how to be a writer for Sex in the City? That's exactly what it is. <laughs> I asked the man and I saw how many Jews in this town. He said to me there used to be a minion and we've been feeling down Yet now it seems as though another Jew has been found Won't you stay with us for Shabbos, Minion Man? Oh, won't you stay with us for Shabbos, Minion Man? Please, won't you stay with us for Shabbos, Minion Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolfe. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Gentile of the Week is Chuck Klosterman, a journalist who writes about American pop culture and has been doing so since around the time of his first book, the classic heavy metal memoir, Fargo Rock City, one of my personal faves. He's written for ESPN and Esquire. He used to write the ethicist column for the Times Magazine. He joined us for an incredible conversation about his new book, The 90s. Chuck Klosterman, welcome to Unorthodox. Hey, it's great to be here. We're so excited. I have an embarrassing question. How do you pronounce your last name? How do you think? I think it's Klosterman and they think You're it's correct. Klosterman. Yes. 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 Um, it is Klosterman. You know, here's the deal. I, I I never correct people on this because it looks like Klosterman. There's no umlaut over it. Sure does. It's like, you know, um, but uh, it is, you know, and my dad used to always be like, well, if you're ever being interviewed or something, you should say our name or it. But, you know, my son, <laughs> who's uh, going to turn eight, he has told me he's going by Klosterman. It's not worth it, he says. <laughs> and you know what? He's fucking right. It was, it's been a problem my whole life. I've had to do this my whole life. And it's like, he's like, no, I'm not doing it. It make, does make me think maybe he has a better sense of this than I do. Yeah. We are so happy to have you with us. I was wondering if you might be able to start us off with just a quick reading from the introduction to your book, The 90s. Oh, sure. This is kind of from the middle of the introduction. For much of the decade, Seinfeld was the most popular, most transformative live-action show on television. It altered the language and shifted comedic sensibilities, and almost every random episode was witnessed by more people than the 2019 finale of Game of Thrones. Yet if you missed an episode of Seinfeld, you simply missed it. You had to wait until it was re-aired the following summer when you could try to manually record it on a VHS videotape. If you missed it again, the only option was to go to a public archive in Los Angeles or Manhattan and request a special viewing on 8mm videotape. But of course, this limitation was not something people worried about, because caring that much about any TV show was not a normal thing to do. And even if you did, you would pretend you did not. Because this was the 90s, you would be more likely to claim that you didn't own a television. That, more than any person or event, informed the experience of 90s life. An adversarial relationship with the unseemliness of trying too hard. A mensella. Yeah, it's an amazing start to a really, a truly fascinating book. So tell us, what were the 90s? <laughs> It, okay, well, okay, so I guess I'm going to answer this question poorly, but it, it will sum up a lot of kind of the complexities of writing a book like this. I mean, in some ways, the 90s were the last decade of the 20th century, but also the last decade that there was. I mean, if you look at the way uh, sort of modern history is unspooled since, you know, 2001, the idea of, say, 2005 
feeling radically different than 2015 or whatever, that it, it, it doesn't really exist as much. I think it's going to be sort of hard to quantify periods of time moving forward. This is kind of an extension of the internet. The 90s are, the hist- are history, but they're not distant history. So for some people, they feel like they just happened. And for other people, it's not that different than talking about the 1950s. It was interesting to try to write a book that would make sense to people who both experienced it as like their own lived history and people who view it as something absolutely separate from the life that they have now. And I I always think of when I was a junior in high school, I remember my world history teacher saying the hardest thing about his job was reconciling the fact that the students in his class thought about the moon landing the same way they thought about the civil war. (laughs) And that made no sense to me at the time. I was like, I don't get what you mean, but now I know what he means. The difference between something that you feel is, was just there and something that was distant becomes the same if you experience neither. And yet I think you're also right. I don't feel like 2004 and 2017 have different flavors to me, but everything before about 2000 each year feels specific somehow. I can, t- 83 versus 87 feels very different to me as someone who lived through it. But basically the last 20 years, the fashions have been the same. The music's kind of been the same. The internet, you know, except social media came in the late aughts, right? And so you're describing the last coherent decade. There's a guy who sort of describes this theory as like the slow cancellation of the future. The idea being that as we move forward through time and while still having access to everything from the past, almost everything becomes to a degree retro. And that makes living in this moment feel almost exactly like living in a moment 10 years ago, which is not something somebody would have said in 1995. It is part of the reason why people feel alienated from a technology that basically runs their whole life. I mean, we're we're all basically using the internet and it's making almost every part of our life easier and yet people seem to be unhappier. And I think this is part of it. This idea that we are being separated from the idea that moments and time have a distinct autonomous meaning. I think maybe our biology needs that in a sense to place ourselves in reality. One of the things you argue throughout the book is what you said about that Seinfeld episode that back in the 90s, caring was uncool was both the decade of the slacker and and movies about the slacker and reality bites where it's the slacker versus the kind of ambitious yuppie for the affection of Winona Ryder. And it was also a time when it was cooler not to own a TV than to have seen everything on TV and all that stuff. Am I right that one of the overarching arguments is that the ethos of the 90s in many ways was to not try too hard and that that sort of vanished? I think especially when you look at, say, the 90s as a caricature of of time. If you you look at what I mean by that is if – you sort of ignore the idea that, you know, every individual is having their own experience. We're looking for sort of bigger trends now, sort of overarching ideas. There was this idea coming out of the 1980s that the idea of being a real kind of aspirational careerist person, that, that was kind of uncouth, you know. It was it was perceived as being somebody who was both superficial and also sort of living a fantasy of this idea of what life can be like as presented, say, from 1980 to 1988 or whatever. You wanted it too much and you also wanted something that was impossible. And there was this idea that you could sort of live your own separate life, that you didn't need to be sort of involved with the machinations of culture or politics or entertainment or any of these things. You could sort of still be separate. Now, why exactly that happened? Well, it's possible that that is 
maybe the identity we've opposed upon that period. But as somebody who was living through that period, if it was being opposed upon me, I completely absorbed it. Because what I have found is for a lot of people my age, I'm going to turn 50 next year, that when I talk to a lot of people who sort of see the 90s as the beginning of their adulthood, like, you know, for me, it was like 18 to 28. I do think that there was a certain degree of damage from this perspective, that this idea that the most important quality to have was a sense of ironic distance to everything. And that emotional investment was, I don't know, almost like a cheap way to sort of create meaning. You know, I feel really weird promoting this book. And I see people younger than me who do not seem to have any problems promoting books. They love promoting books. It's almost the part they like most. Every time I try to sell this book, I feel inauthentic and fraudulent. Because the worst thing to be was a seller, yes, right? I mean, that's your absolutely. whole Nirvana chapter is like the worst thing to be was to actually want people to buy your record. <laughs> I think a big part of that wasn't just this idea that you were trying to make more money or that you were trying to be successful. It was that you were trying to get approval from people you had no relationship, people who weren't naturally the kind of person who would be in your peer group. And that was seen as, you know, incredibly fake. And I don't think the idea of fakeness being such a problem, I just, I don't think it's perceived that way anymore. In fact, I know it's not. But it's so funny, you know, reading your book, I just kept thinking of whatever era we're in right now, right? Because we're all selling something. It's like, we have this podcast and then the episode comes out and then you share it on social media and you talk to the listeners. Like there's these feedback loops, just the idea of the influencer, right? Like we are all selling things at one point or another. Even this, I what you said about writers, like selling the book is half, you sell the book, right? Then you write it and then you literally sell it. And that is like a, an occupation for a lot of people, right? Like selling the products that they want us to consume. And I don't know, we try so hard right now, right? Like the cool thing is to try really hard to not be ironic at all. And by the way, I'm never the one who says this on the show. It's usually these two guys who are like bemoaning the world we live in today, but it, it was sort of depressing. You need to be a brand. You're, you're like self-promotion. Like these are sort of like second nature today. And it's really disturbing to think about it. I, I don't even know if I should be disturbed by it anymore because I think now it is seen as the reasonable way to perceive things. If you talk to a young person now, and you've, when I say young, I mean like an informed, smart, 22-year-old person. And um, you ask them, well, like, what's the biggest problem in America? They will inevitably focus on the idea that it's capitalism, that capitalism is sort of the root cause of almost every problem we have in this country. And yet if you ask that same kind of person in the 90s, this sort of intellectually activated 22-year-old, they would have said probably commercialism. It wasn't the idea that selling things or having a capitalistic system was the problem. The problem was people who were almost trying to leverage that system and take advantage of it by selling something beyond its sort of natural existence, like like trying to almost trick people into thinking that uh, this is something they wanted. So it wasn't that the products themselves were the problem. It was the way they were presented. Whereas now I think the perception is it is the things themselves, that like anything that's popular is a tool of capitalism and that creates this whole superstructure. And Hey, J. Crew, it's Mark here. Pardon the interruption, but in a totally 90s move, uh, our tech broke down and we had to call in the AV guy. And he finally showed up. The Zoom basically didn't work. Somehow we, we lost our Zoom recording and we lost the whole rest of the conversation that involved Liel and Stephanie. So 
Chuck Klosterman graciously agreed to hop back on a call with me a few days later. And so the rest of the conversation is just me and Chuck, just my new buddy Chuck and me talking 90s and, and talking North Dakota life. I just want to mention that we're giving away three free copies of Chuck Klosterman's new book, The 90s. It is terrific. It's a two-sit read. I'm not going to claim I went through it in one sitting, but but two sittings. And uh, it's a total delight. So if you want to know more about how to get your free copy, follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Now that my friends aren't here, um, Chuck, I can just tell you, like, I am I am a huge fan. I just really, it's, it's an honor. I just love your work. Well, that's very nice of you to say. It's always interesting when someone does say that because I never know how much to say thank you because if you do too much, it kind of seems like, oh, you're being fake now. You're going over the top. But at the same time, a part of me will always be like, it's so crazy that this happened. That yeah. this, my life, now, you know, so I, I do... I appreciate you saying you're not being fake to say it. Like I, you know, it's, I imagine it's a nice thing here and it's real. And you of course have taught, you talk in your book and you've talked elsewhere as every rock critic has talked about that weird thing. When you love a band and you, you think, why doesn't the whole world know this band? Then when the whole world discovers that band, you're mad at everyone because you were there first. And I did pick up Fargo rock city in some Barnes and Noble in 19. When was that? Or two, 2001. So I was in grad school. I didn't have a huge budget for like new hardcover books, right? Spending 24 95 on a new hardcover was, not part of the family budget. And yet I saw it. I thought, this is my jam. I'm going to buy this. And I purchased it and read it that night. And it was awesome. And I do want to take us back to there. And, you know, you say that it's crazy that you've had this career. Tell me a little about how that book came to be, because it wasn't a natural book for that moment. Tell, tell people who don't know it what it is and, and give us the origin story of Fargo Rock City. Okay. Well, what had happened was I had um, worked in, you know, I grew up in North Dakota, worked in Fargo until you know, 1998. I worked there from 1994 to 1998. You had taken your fancy Princeton degree to Fargo, right? Is that, <laughs> yeah. is that, that was your, <laughs> no, you went to university. Well, you know, like I went to the university of North Dakota, which was in Grand Forks. So like moving to Fargo didn't seem like <laughs> I was moving to a more urban area, you know? Cause like, like the, you know, like Dazed and Confused never played in Grand Forks, but it played in Fargo. It's like, you know, it's like wow. it was, so it did seem like I was sort of becoming more of a uh, an East Coast elite. You were becoming a cosmopolitan, an effete blue stater. Anyways, so I go to Akron, Ohio, and, um, you know, I don't know anyone there. This is for I've another never job. I've been there before. You moved there for yeah, another job. Yeah, to work at the Akron Beacon Journal. Well, what happened was strange. I had applied for a job at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which I was not qualified to, to, to get. It was the base of the music writer for the St. Lewis Post Dispatch, and somehow, like I, like I had, I only driven in Minneapolis like twice. There's no way I could have went to St. Louis and like covered the music scene there. I didn't know anything about hip hop really. Uh, it would have been just a disaster. But somehow, I was like the runner up for this job. And when the guy called me from the St. Louis Post Dispatch, he told me I wasn't getting this job or whatever. But he was like, you know, you should probably get out of Fargo. I, I think that you need to, you know, do something else. And I was like, well, who did you hire at the dispatch? And he was like, well, what do you care? And I was like, well, I'm just curious. <laughs> it was like, I was like, who did you hire? And he's like, oh, some guy you never heard of named Kevin Johnson from the Akron Beacon Journal. So I was like, okay. Then I immediately sent my resume and clips to Akron like that day. So, so like, I think that they hired me partially because they thought I was psychic. <laughs> because like, I, I basically applied for a job probably the same day the guy resigned. I don't know. That's how I got, I wrote a religion column for the New York Times for six years. I applied for it when I heard the other person was leaving. I just was the first one in the door and I saved the hiring editor a lot of work because I was mildly plausible as a candidate. 
and then they didn't have to post the job. I mean, that's that's how the world works, right? Well, and, and it also, I think, gives them a sense that, they, that it's an illusion, but I think it gives the employer the sense that this was meant to be right. somehow. Right. That this person that we're getting, it's like, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it makes, it's just, well, the universe is making this happen. So I go to Akron and they have a, a union there. So like in Fargo, I'm making like 21 or 22,000 bucks a year. Now at the Akron Beacon Journal, I, I started like $45,000, which just seemed like an insane amount of money to me at the time. Enough that I could buy a computer, which I'd never previously owned. I'd never had a computer in my house. So, you know, I have a computer and I have no friends, which is the perfect situation to write a book. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I would go to like the Barnes and Noble or the Borders, you know, and I would just sort of look at books. And because I was a music writer, I would look through all these books and, you know, I would see books on jazz and on alt country and lots of books on punk and a whole bunch of Bob Dylan books and a whole bunch of Beatles books. And then it would seem like every genre of music that existed had one or two books written about it except the music that I had listened to, which was like 80s hair metal. That's all I listened to in, when I was in high school. I listened to like Kiss and Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and Poison and Faster Pussycat and Wasp, Warrant. Like, that's all I listened to. I didn't listen. I, I was so dogmatic about it that I would, for my like clock radio, I had it on alarm instead of radio because I was afraid if I woke up to the radio, they might be playing pop music. Like, the, like I'd, I'd be hearing like, you know, I'd be hearing like Edie Brickell or something. And I just didn't want this to happen. Yes. What? And then your whole day would be, it would, it would ruin your whole day. I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't even get back in my mind as to what I, my fear of hearing like walking in Memphis or whatever would have done to me. But anyway, so uh, I think to myself at first, this is because this music does not have a literary relationship to humans. Like nobody likes rat or whatever wants to read about rat. But the more I thought about it, the more incorrect that seemed because I was that person. Here I am in a bookstore looking for books to read. And a lot of the friends I had had in college, because, you know, I went to college in the early nineties. So it was a bunch of kids from farms in North Dakota who had like grown up listening to Iron Maiden and Bon Jovi and stuff. And then we all got into Nirvana and Liz Fair and Radiohead and all that stuff. We'd made this transition, but we still had all this kind of this shared memory of this period of being into these metal bands. So I was like, well, somebody should do a book like this. Maybe I should do this book. But metal, especially 80s metal, was so unpopular in 1998 and 99 that I thought the only way I could do this would be to write an academic book. That would be the only possible way, even though... I don't have an academic degree besides like a degree in journalism. I didn't go to grad school or anything like that, you know, but I could kind of write in the language of academia because I had read David Foster Wallace and I sort of just understood the way this is supposed to work or whatever. Footnotes and shit that were going to be like, yeah, yeah. exactly. You were going to problematize things and the dialectic comes up a lot, you know, instead of, instead of saying the vibe, you say the aesthetic, you know, things like that. I knew all like the ways to do it. So I, I write like a hundred and 50 pages, maybe, or 125 pages, just in my spare time. Like I'd come home from the office and start writing at eight or nine o'clock at night and write till midnight. And I have these hundred and so pages. And I think to myself, well, I've definitely seen books worse than this. Like this, like if this became a book, it wouldn't be the worst book I've ever read. So I just start sending it to academic publications. Like I sent it to the Duke University Press, I think, first. I sent it to the Harvard University Press and I sent one to the Columbia University Press. And this woman wrote me a letter back and I've lost this letter. I don't know her name. I always hope if I bring it up, she'll hear this 
and contact me because this person changed my life. This woman wrote me back a letter and she said, well, like we can't publish this book because we're an academic press and you swear constantly in this book. So it's like, it doesn't seem like an academic book. But the other thing she said is the most interesting parts of this book is when you use your own life to illustrate these points about why this music was important and how it kind of reflected the sociology of the Midwest, because that's sort of what the angle was. It was like, like how you use heavy metal to understand the sociology of being an adolescent in the Midwest, you know, in the rural Midwest. Now, the only reason I did that was because like, there's no academic precedent for writing about Tesla. You can't go into the library and find this. So I would have to like, oh, my friend Greg Moffat, he was into Tesla and he thought this. So, you know, he would say this about the band. So I'll say this. So it was like out of necessity. But she said, that's the kind of the interesting part of this. So then I went back and maybe wrote a hundred more pages that was just pure memoir, like just nostalgia to a degree, but more so like, this is how these songs and these records were like a soundtrack for whatever I was doing. It was pretty much nothing, but for the nothingness I was doing, this is what I listened to. Then I chopped the entire book up into small little sections. Anything that seemed like its own section, I made into like a separate file and I put them in chronological order <laughs> and that became the book. So that's how it worked, you know? And then I didn't know what to do with it. So now it's a version of this book is done probably in 1999. And I, I tried to do this trick, I guess, although the trick worked. I don't know if it would work now. Billboard Books had released a book called Kiss and Sell about the band Kiss. Okay. So I went to the acknowledgments page and I found the name of the editor. I called Billboard Books at a time when I assumed he would be at lunch. I called it like 1230. And I left this message where I said, hey, this is Chuck Klosterman from the Akron Beacon Journal. I'm curious about this book, Kiss and Sell. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about something. I have this idea. I'm sure he thought I wanted to do a story on it, right? So he calls me back at like one o'clock. Well, that's the whole goal, right? The reason you query anyone is to get them to call you. So then I had like 90 seconds to pitch him this book. So I tell him what the book is. And he's like, man, that sounds kind of interesting. Sure, send it to me. So I send him this book and they come back and they want to publish it. But they want to pay, I think it was $7,000. And they wanted to have all these photographs in it. And he wanted it to be more like of a heavy metal encyclopedia. And I said no to that, which in my mind, I'm still surprised I did. Because like $7,000 is a lot when you have nothing. You know, like I, like I had $1,000 in the bank. So I was like, $7,000 is nothing. But I was like, boy, I just, I won't like this somehow. I won't, it will be like, I'll, I'll always feel like I wasted this opportunity. So I said no. And then just assumed maybe it would be published when I was older. Like maybe I would just hang on to this thing. And if I had a long career as a newspaper writer, maybe I could then leverage that when I'm 50 to publish the book. But instead, I ended up encountering this agent who had was starting out. He was younger than I was. I was 28. He was 27 or something. He had like sold one book or two books. But he was like, I want to try to sell this book of yours. And I was like, okay, go ahead. I have no idea if you're good or bad at your job. His name was Todd Keithley. He's not even an agent anymore. His wife got into med school, so he quit. Um, <laughs> but it was like a, he sold this book. He sold the book to, to Scribner for $25,000, which to me, you know, I realize when you say that now, that seems like a nothing advance, but that was like, I couldn't believe I was getting $25,000 for this. The guy buying the book, it was the first book he'd ever bought. 
And uh, that's kind of how it worked out. I mean, so that's why I always think if somebody asks for advice, like, how should I go about publishing a book? Like, I'd be like, I don't know. I don't fucking know how it happened for me. It's useless, but it's useful because it's a more common story. I mean, I know for myself as a writer and for a lot of writers I know, that's what we did. We reverse engineered it by saying like, who published this thing that's kind of like the thing we want to do? And then you find an agent and it's never, it's never all the connections people think it is. It's more like a weird sort of scrappiness it's an arrogance and a scrappiness, I think. Here's what it is. I, nobody wants to admit this because it seems either like kind of fake humility or it seems to discount, you know, intelligence and work and all these things. But the biggest determinant of your life, no matter what you do, is chance. Mm-hmm. It's not luck. There's not somebody out there pulling the strings, dictating that you're lucky and someone else is not. It's chance. Everyone in life is going to have these periods where things sort of come together by chance that if you play the cards right, everything lines up and the dominoes all line up forever. Michael Lewis once gave a a commencement speech or something at Princeton where he basically said, you think you're good, but you're actually just lucky. But you're saying chance is different from luck. Explain to me what's the difference there? Because I'm, I'm with you, but I'm not seeing the difference between chance and luck. Okay, luck to me is always like it's a leprechaun or something. Somebody decides you're the lucky person this is the person who's unlucky, you know, whereas chance, I think, and I suppose people will just, you know, some people might say this is like a privileged idea or whatever, but I kind of feel chance in different ways occurs to almost everyone that, that there are situations, they might seem very counterintuitive or like they don't seem like a good thing at the time, but you kind of, you, you meander through life and the maze of life and, and, and every so often like a window opens and then if you jump through that window, it seems like you were this brilliant, talented, hardworking person. But if you keep walking by, you seem, oh, unlucky or whatever. Like, you know, it didn't break for you. So I think what happened was, is throughout my life, there's been situations where chance played a huge role and accepting the risk inherent with that chance, there was like a big payoff. Right, right. Okay, I get it. That makes sense. So the book, it's basically a sort of personal memoir as sociology of the different ways that different adolescent boys or even pre-adolescent boys relate to the different heavy metal bands out on the Iron Range or the, you know, deep north of your childhood and what they meant to you. Is that a fair summation? Well, sort of. I think it was my sort of belief that it does not matter what art you're interested in. It's how you're into it. In other words, it doesn't matter if it is, you know, Bon Jovi or the Velvet Underground. It doesn't really, it's it's just because we all accept that one is a higher form of art than the other. But what really matters is the engagement of the person consuming it. So I was in this situation where, you know, I didn't have cable. The radio was extremely limited. Um, The only music in my hometown really was metal and country. That was it. Like ACDC was the crossover band. That was like, you know, every, like that's all we listened to. So in order to sort of pursue this, I, you know, I hate using words like this, but like this, I guess it's passionate interest in, uh, in the culture of music. And, and, you know, I had to use what was there. So to me, someone like Axl Rose was an incredibly fascinating, complicated character that had all these sort of 
philosophical contradictions built into his presentation of this art form at a high level, which I had a deep appreciation of. You know, I think for somebody who had grown up in Minneapolis or certainly New York or L.A., they would have seen Guns N' Roses as maybe the least uncool mainstream act. So Fugger Rock City, to me, I think of it as an attempt to take something that is not perceived as significant art and saying, well, what if it is to the consumer? How does that work? Why do certain subcultures take hold some places and not other subcultures, right? So for, for you guys, it was heavy metal and country. That's what was on available to you in the farm, in the farm community in North Dakota. If you had said to me country and polka, I would have believed that. And if you had said to me country and top 40, I would have believed that too. But you happen to say country and heavy metal. The writer Michael McDonald, who wrote a great memoir about growing up Boston Irish called All Soul, he has this great line in it that the real working class Irish kids in Southie only listened to soul. They listened to black music, white kids. And when they heard someone drive by in a car with classic rock on, with playing Journey or Boston or Kansas or whatever, they knew that was like yuppie middle-class scum from Newton or Brookline, right? It was like there were these little, somehow mm-hmm. black soul music yeah. had become the music of their white working class experience. So why was it heavy metal? Like what about Poison and Rat took hold on the farm and not Steve Winwood or Mark Cohn or- I mean, you know, that's a, I, I think a question that in some ways for me, less for that guy, because what he's really talking about is sort of peer groups make a decision about what is cool. And when you're in high school, you know, you, you use the music you like to present your identity. As you become an adult, you know, people always wonder like, boy, I loved all these bands. You know, I loved music when I was 16, you know, now I'm 30 and it doesn't seem the same way. It's because when you were 16, you were using that music to form your character. Now you're actually a person. You are who you are. So your experience is ancillary. It's kind of only intellectual. It's not identity-based in the same way. And I think what he was talking about is sort of how these groups became almost shorthand for understanding these cliques of people. In my scenario, we were 65 miles from Fargo and about 30 miles from a town called Wapiton, which had maybe 15,000 people. What would happen is, a certain kind of kid who sort of unconsciously developed a leadership role would be the person who would go to Fargo, go to the record stores, buy cassettes, bring them back, and sort of say, this is what's cool. This is what I'm into. And then because, because of the role that person occupied, being this person, we just sort of accepted it. Who was that person? Well, Eric Thompson was the, in my, for, in, for me. Was, what's he up to now? He's a doctor. Really? Yeah. In in North Dakota? Yes. Yeah. Is he still listening to music? Like, do you ever say, dude? Have uh, you heard- I saw him on face. I saw on Facebook. He and his wife went to the Motley Crue reunion and uh, got their picture taken with the band. So obviously, he still has some interest in this. I haven't talked to him in years, but like you know, um, but but I'm sure there was some guy for him too because he was three years older than me. And there's you know where where somebody would kind of introduce this music, and it would just it's a little mysterious, except for the fact that this is extremely common in rural North Dakota and rural Minnesota and rural South Dakota, where the dominant music is country for completely all the reasons you would expect, because it sort of reflects the lifestyle that you're living and hard rock, because hard rock has always been the primary musical interest for lower class white people. And like what I didn't realize growing up is that almost everyone in my community is kind of relatively poor or lower class. Like the richest kid I knew, uh, I, I very much remember this. He was like, the, he was a year younger than me. And when he was a sophomore, 
his parents bought him a used Grand Prix and we could not believe it. That this like, that this guy had like a used Grand Prix, like it, it was a couple of years old or whatever, but it seemed amazing to us that anybody would be wealthy enough to give their kid a used car as a sophomore. And I was just blown away with like, I, I didn't really realize this till I moved to New York. When I moved to New York, and I would hear people talking about how they believed that they were poor growing up. And every one of them seemed rich compared to my memory. Then I was like, oh, but you only know what's around you. You see, like, I never at any point ever associated myself as being poor. I never would have thought that, ever. I didn't realize that until I was 30-some, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, let's talk about class for a minute. You live in Portland, Oregon, right? Yeah. And you have two kids. They're how old? My son just turned eight. And my daughter turns six tomorrow. And your wife's a critic as well, right? She writes about yes. rock and stuff. She wrote a, an oral history of Dazed and Confused. That did very well. It's one of the best books I've read in the past couple of years. Uh, I, I'm glad. I yeah. think it's an, it was actually a Hanukkah present for me. And I think it's, um, my <laughs> wife knows me well. She she's I don't think she's ever sat through all of Dazed and Confused, and, but I've sat through <laughs> it 40 times. So give her my congratulations again. But there you are. I, I'm assuming you have middle-class-ish incomes that combined put you in, you know, you're doing much better than your parents did financially. Well, I mean, now it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not- Hear me out. My point is you're raising kids who have the kind of material privilege that you would have thought was crazy rich when you were back on the farm. Oh, yes. And I'm curious if that ever gives you misgivings in two ways. One, from a kind of social justice perspective. Do you worry, do my kids have any perspective, right? That this would not have been an accessible purchase for me if I'd wanted it. But number two, do you have any sense that the farm- and your upbringing formed you in a good way, that there was something kind of basic about those values that gets lost when one's living in an affluent town like Portland, Oregon. Well, okay, for the question about the kids, absolutely. Because, I mean, I think this is a central problem for anybody whose adult life is radically different than their adolescence in terms of their economic sort of status. You want them to sort of perceive the value in things in a way similar to you. And yet at the same time, it seems insane to stop them from sort of enjoying the experience that money allows. Like, you know, it's like I, I had to take loans to go to a state college where the, I believe our tuition was 2,200 a semester. Okay. Like my wife went to Cornell, what she paid a year in Cornell and what her bad parents paid for a year in Cornell is more than I paid in college in totality. But I still had to take loans and get Pell Grants and stuff to do that. I don't want to put my kids through that, right? Like I don't, I, I, I very much can remember one time as a little kid, there was this Godzilla coloring book and I, I loved Godzilla and it was a rare Godzilla coloring book that instead of doing the kind of the Saturday morning cartoon Godzilla. It was based on the movies where Ooh. Godzilla destroyed things. Yeah. And my mom wouldn't get it for me. She's like, it's not your birthday. It's not Christmas. And I just, I, I just, I remember thinking like, what, like it, you know, and like now if I, when I imagine my son in that scenario, I think to myself when like, he's looking at Pokemon cards or whatever, is he looking at those things the way I looked at this coloring book and what is the real problem with him having it except my understanding that if he consistently gets Pokemon cards in this scenario, he will not have that feeling about this object. This object that this object I never owned means more to me than the things I'm buying him. So I'm always trying to figure out how to do this, but I don't, I don't know if there is 
an answer. Yeah. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Do you create artificial scarcity just to heighten the value, the sort of totemic exactly. mystical value of, of, well, it's the question we face with music, right? Remember how valuable music was when it was hard to get? And now, yes. now we're annoyed by everything on our playlist because we've it's too easy to get. And we think, why don't I have any good music on my iPhone? And it's because there's so much music on our iPhone and it's cheap, it's free. So it, it loses its its value. I mean, you know, and as far as the other question goes, like, did being, you know, being raised on a farm, did somehow give me this sort of like this basic worldview that, you know, that's good. I mean, I'd like to say yes. I don't really know. I will say this. I realize now that it's to my advantage that that's where I came from because it's interesting to people in a way it would not be interesting if I was from even Omaha. Right. Like the, like, like I, I was once describing how wedding dances happen in my town. Like, I don't know, where'd you grow up? Uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. So uh, I've been there and went to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, So like uh, like in my hometown, when somebody would get married, so what would happen is, so you'd have the wedding in the church, you know, then you'd have the reception in like the social hall of the church. But then there was the wedding dance. And what the wedding dance was, the fire hall where the fire trucks were, they would drive the fire trucks out. So it's this big concrete building. And then the family would set up their own bar. Like you would just like buy kegs and buy whiskey and vodka and wine and <laughs> champagne. And you would, use, and then you'd get a sign that says not responsible for accidents. I really doubt that that would uh, be uh, very, very, very legally, legally The but legally then, airtight sign, not responsible for accidents. So then a, we, you'd hire a band, a wedding band, to play in the fire hall where the fire trucks would be. And here's the thing that my friends, uh, that I was always surprised by. Anyone could go. Not just anyone in town, anyone from a neighboring town. They didn't have to know the couple at all. They didn't have to know the family at all. We would sometimes hear that there was like a wedding dance in like a different town. We would have no idea who they were. We would just go and go to the wedding dance because also it's like, you know, you could, you could drink when you're 14 at these things, sort of, you know, there was, it was just, you know, and I would describe this to people, you know, in New York and they would be like, did you grow up in Russia? Like they couldn't, they, they couldn't believe that this had happened. Like that, that this is, was a normal, like all during the summer in my hometown that happened like every other weekend. That, that they would drive all the fire trucks out of the fire station and there would be a dance there that anyone could go to in like an ad hoc bar. They're like with no, you know. That's yeah. awesome. And, and, yeah. Um, so like, you know, so people find that kind of interesting or charming or whatever, you know. Uh, it had never occurred to me that was weird. There, there are so many things that I now realize growing up that were very strange. That it, It's not that I thought they were normal. I had never really thought of them. Like I did not think about the meaning of this, like at my school, for example, on the Friday when deer hunting season began, um, you could leave school that day. That that was a a completely acceptable thing. So a lot of my friends would show up on that Friday and they'd have their rifles in their car and they would, cause you had to stay until noon. Hunting started at noon. So you'd go to class in the morning and you would leave at noon and then you would come back at three 30 for football practice. Because we, we, our football practice was at four. So it was a completely acceptable thing. <laughs> All right. So I can't let you go with, with without asking this. And 
you know, forgive me for this is like I walk up to the doctor at the bar mitzvah party and say, could you look at my, you know, could I, I, yeah. I have some dermatitis because you are one of the people who helped tell me what to listen to you and Rob Sheffield. I come out of a particular era of reading like Rolling Stone and Spin or whatever. We're sort of I always knew what the next band that I might like was because I knew which critics, you know, I was reading you. I was reading Ann Powers. I was reading Rob. I was reading these people. It's like if I try, and I know that each of you had your different flavor and some of you were more writing reviews and some more profiles. But if I triangulated among four or five critics, I knew whose tastes I knew, I knew what to go buy. And then the magazines either ceased to exist or ceased to be coming out regularly or or I lost touch with them. I had kids and maybe they're now doing it all on the web and in newsletters or whatever, but like I now have no idea. Could you help orient me towards how to get my footing again in terms of what music I might like that's being made today? I realize that's the most basic request. I'm almost ashamed to make it. No, it's but it's a it's not a basic request because it's- Help teach me how to surf again. Well, I'm 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 ashamed to admit I don't know if there is an answer now because now the way culture has changed, it seems as though music finds me. Like I don't look for it; I'm looking at something else, and all of a sudden something shoots in there and says, "There's a new record by so and so or whatever." Like, um, like or a friend of mine will be listening to something and he'll just text me randomly about it. I don't feel like I look for anything anymore. The way I, I used to, I used to go to the store every Tuesday and like, you'd see what was new. You maybe talk to the person working there, you know, and like, try to like, and try to say something to the guy working there or the woman working there that made, seem to suggest that you were cool in a way that they would give you something cool. And it's like, you know, that was a big part of it. Or like reading spin magazine, like you would just read spin and you'd be like, okay, uh, they say pavement is good. I'm buying pavement. So you don't have any sources like that right now. There's no, there's no new version of spin where I can go check it out. None. They say this is good. None. I can check it out with some reasonable assurance that it's not too far off the mark. None. But that seems like a massive market failure. Like for like the 47 year old who is busy raising kids, but still wants to acquire new music. Why is nobody telling me? Music criticism has changed a lot because the era we're talking about, that was the period where people reviewed records that as you were reading the review, you had no access to. So if you were reading about anybody, Oasis or whatever, before the record was released, they would give you this expository description of what it was like. They would almost try to- They try to conjure it. Yes, yeah. Where now they don't do that, right? Because they know you can just go to it. So now- Almost all music criticism is a form of kind of actually like the kind of like political writing or like ideology signaling. Like where do they fit in the current cultural moment rather than what do they sound like? Well, or it's just sort of like I listen to this record and I like it. So therefore, I'm going to find a way to describe it matching my political worldview. Oh, I don't like this music. I'm going to describe it as reactionary. I'm going to say that actually this musician probably is like only exists because of Trump or whatever. It's like, that's, I find it almost useless now. It has been so long since I've read some music writing that seemed to in any way speak to my interest in music that I just, I, I, I almost don't look at any of it. So like I, I, if I, anytime I do a book reading, for example, because I was a, a music critic for so long, somebody from the audience will always ask me, it's like, what should I be listening to now? And my response is always, the fact that you asked that question probably means I should be asking you because for you, this is a conscious thing you're trying to find. I don't consciously think that way anymore. Also, things like Spotify give me unlimited ability to go back in time. So I'm really moving backwards. 
Like I'm like I'm I'm moving like through the 70s, through the 60s, into the 50s. Like I'm pretty close to listening to jazz. Like I'm like like that's where I'm going, and that's gonna be marching band music. Uh, two final questions for you. Back to the 90s. I mean, I I love how you encounter the 90s as as this 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 interesting period. You're not pro 90s or anti 90s. You're really just kind of trying to figure out what it what it was. It was, and you have all these interesting takes on it that that was back when you were more likely to say you didn't own a TV than you were to try to watch all of TV, for example. So just purely on a gut level, like what's something you missed from the 90s? What was something you love and what was something that, that you hated? Well, first of all, I, I appreciate you saying that because I see when people write about this book as it's a natural thing to do. They often mention it sort of as an extension of nostalgia. It doesn't really seem nostalgic to me no. because nostalgia is sort of like misremembering the past to match your emotion from the period. I don't think this book is like that. Things I miss from the 90s. Well, there's I actually could list a ton of them, like, like talking on the phone, which I never do anymore. And some, and I think it's partially because of the way phones feel and just sort of all the things that have replaced it. I often remember calling people and talking for 90 minutes. Like that was like, like or watching a TV show together with someone on the phone. Like you'd like, you'd, you'd call someone and there'd be like a sporting event on, or maybe like my so-called life or something. And you'd watch the show while listening to them on the phone. And like that, that was real great. That was a real enriching thing. I liked the fact that memory mattered more. And what I mean by that is that your own ability to remember things was a more essential part of being a smart person. And there was almost this idea that if you were somebody who could remember all this minutia, that alone sort of made you a, a significant person. Now that is useless. The idea of remembering minor details, factoids, trivia thing um, is now like a waste of time because we have these machines that can do it all for us. And in a lot of ways, it has made someone like me kind of an irrelevant person. So I, so I miss that. I, like I miss almost like the anecdotal nature of reality. So you are a Gentile, though I believe you have quarter Jewish children. Uh, and Mazel Tov on that. So we always allow the Gentiles to ask a Gentile question of the week. Anything about Jewish culture, theology, uh, it's Jews. Th this is a safe space. Is what, what can we tell you? Okay. You know, one thing that I find very fascinating is, uh, is that if you look up what percentage of people in the United States are Jewish, the number that usually comes up, it's usually 1.9. Does that seem right? I, I always tell people it's somewhere between one and two on our, the best knowledge okay, yeah. we have. Yeah. Okay. And if you do the same for Mormons, it's 2%. Mm -hmm. And yet the imprint Judaism has had on American culture is so much greater than what the Mormon culture has done. I mean, outside of like Mitt Romney, the BYU football team. Napoleon Dynamite. The lead singer of the Killers. Like the killers, it's a very right? small number, yes. Um, <laughs> so why do you think that is? Why is, the, why is oh the influence of Judaism on culture so much greater than... Mormonism. Is it what the Mormons aren't doing or is it what the Jews are doing? So Jews spend a lot of time. We all have an Aunt Sylvia who's always emailing us lists of great Jews. How many Jews have won the Nobel Prize? And like we always we have some crazy, you know, ethnocentric, ethno chauvinist aunt. Everybody who's Jewish, like knows Getty Lee is Jewish. Right. They know the two guys are kissed from Jewish. They know David Lee Roth is Jewish. They know every Jewish person. 
When you have a couple thousand years of being beat up on, right? I mean, we are a minority culture, right? For all of our success in America, it's pretty recent. It feels like at times it feels like it could be withdrawn at any moment, but like there's always a little kind of funny anti-Semitism or not so funny out there. Mormons certainly know that Napoleon Dynamite is a Mormon made movie, right? When you're a minority culture, you always know who your big successes are. Your Gal Gadot's, your Natalie Portman's, your, you know, beautiful Jewish people. So, but that doesn't explain why we've had the success we've had. I mean, you know, one thing to say is that in the arts in particular in America, of course, Hollywood was an outsider industry, right? The Jews went out and founded Hollywood studios because, you know, proper wasps weren't going to found studios. They were doing banking and, you know, railroads and proper gentlemanly things. They weren't basically taking burlesque houses and putting it on cellulite for movies. So that was an outsider industry that was started by people who also had moved west because they thought it was a promised land where they could make a buck. So there was a kind of like outsider immigrant mentality to Hollywood and the record industry and all of these things because the arts were a low-class way, right? Shakespeare's actors were working-class people who who had to, 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 to perform for the royalty. They weren't gentlemen themselves. So in the arts, there's that. I mean, as to why Jews are successful in medicine and law and all this stuff, there, there actually are no good theories. Well, just more present, just, like just more present. One thing I'll tell you is this, right? I mean, basically what you're talking about in America and in a lot of Western Europe is immigrations out of the shtetl in the mid to late 1800s. And then people like this explosion from say 1900, 1940 or 1950 of kids who like within one generation went from like studying Talmud in little yeshivas to being neurosurgeons and you know, studio owners or whatever. That was a one-time thing that seems to have come out of a highly literate culture. Jews had really high literacy and low alcoholism. I mean, Philip Roth has this great line about, you know, why, why did Jews make it? You know, because week after week, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, we went to bed sober, right? Like, well, you know, it, it is, it really is interesting. Like even when I was in New York, the really hard partying people I know who was Jewish, they like doing drugs. They didn't drink that much compared to like, like, whereas like for me, like growing up in the Midwest, drinking was, it was almost an athletic event. Like it was like a big deal how much you could drink and still drive. Like that was a, that was a, a valuable skill. You know, like, <laughs> Especially when you're getting your license at 14 or 15 yeah. <laughs> or whatever it was. North Dakota. So I don't, there's a lot of micro theories and we spent a lot of time on the podcast. The, the big thing is nobody really knows, but I will tell you this, it's ending, right? The, the number of Jews at the Ivy League, at the med schools, it's going down and down and down. The immigrant drive to succeed, the hunger, it ain't what it was. And it's other fabulous immigrant and minority groups who are occupying those roles in American culture because there's a hunger and an innovation and an outsider spirit. And the, the kind of, Jew, the sense that Jews are at the center, for example, of New York literary culture or the movies or whatever is, is kind of on the wane. You and I are the youngest people who think that way, I think. For the Mormon piece of it, I actually once wrote a piece about this for the New York Times that the Mormons loved, which is why is there no great literature by American Mormons? And I thought I was going to get blasted. Like, you know, I just talked to Mormons about it. I went to Mormons and the only Mormon authors who are successful are like Orson Scott Card. They do genre fiction. They do sci-fi or maybe they do romance. There's no Paul Auster or David Foster Wallace or Meg Wolitzer. There's no literary, no Alice Munro of the Mormons. There's no one doing like serious literature that might win a Pulitzer who's Mormon. Why? And, and this is for people who have very high success rate literacy. They go to college. They make money. They, right? And the answer was that I got from Mormons themselves, who, by the way, now want to be called Latter-day Saints. The answer I got from, from, from saints themselves was that they're too afraid of psychology. You, you have to put on a Mormon smile. You have to be happy all the time. You, if there's pain or, or drama or neuroses, you pretend it doesn't exist. That the Mormon culture 
is that Mitt Romney culture of like, look at my eight smiling children and don't look behind the curtain. Because real literature is about complexity and misery, the, the misery underneath the surface. And that's something that Latter-day Saints are culturally not interested. You're not supposed to talk about that. So that's an answer Mormons gave me. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's true, but anyway, there you go. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. All right. Well, good luck with the book. This has been an honor. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, you guys, again, and I appreciate you doing this. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? We have a mazel tov to Orthodox woman Liba Yofi, who is going to return to American Ninja Warrior. People obviously were very, very excited when she was on. She was great. And she's not only going to return to that show, she will be coming on our show as well. So stay tuned for that. And mazel tov, Liba. And now we have a couple farewells. Uh, I'm going to go first. I want to say farewell to someone I had never heard of, but I read this obituary yesterday about this guy named John Zazula, Z-A-Z-U-L-A. Johnny Z, they apparently called him. With his wife, Marsha, he co-founded a record company called Megaforce Records that brought out albums by heavy metal bands like Metallica and Anthrax. And it, it turns out that between that and also promoting the Monsters of Rock show and just generally being a force in heavy metal, he was a, a significant dude in bringing us uh, some of the great bands that that Chuck Klosterman, in fact, listened to for his entire childhood. They also owned a, a record store called Rock and Roll Heaven. And I just, I, I read this obituary and I loved this guy, John Zazula, even though these are not necessarily my favorite bands. And I just keep reading and I'm thinking, I feel like this guy is Jewish. I just feel like there's so many Jews in the record industry. I'm reading about him and I'm getting, I'm getting a, a Yid spirit from him. But Zazula, you don't know what that is. It could be Italian, could be Polish. Could be... Then I read down and it says, Jonathan David Zazula was born March 16th, 1952 in the Bronx. His father, Norman, was a shipping clerk and his mother, Helen, nay, Rish Zazala, was recreation director at a nursing home. And he, he grew up in the Bronx and he went to Lehman College. And I'm just reading this and I'm thinking, this dude is a Jew. I just believe that Jonathan David Zazala, Jonathan David Ben Norman Vahelen from the Bronx is a Jew. If anyone knows differently, you can correct me. I don't care, frankly. I want to say farewell anyway. I wish I'd known you. You seem like a totally cool guy. And uh, I hope that wherever you are now, you're, uh, you're headbanging. So that's one farewell. And, and Liel, I know that you have another farewell this week. Do you want to tell us about your friend, Todd? You know, it's always difficult to lose someone you're close to. Um, but this, this really hit me in a different way. I met Todd Gitlin when he was my dissertation advisor at Columbia University. We soon became very close friends. We co-wrote a book together. And here's the thing. Um, these last couple of years, we sort of had... I don't want to call it a falling out, but we had grown distant. Uh, I think it was mainly because Todd didn't like some of the directions my my thinking and writing were going. And, and you know, it's just one of these things that happens without sort of big moments of breakup and declaration where you just find yourself not having spoken to someone you used to be very close with for, you know, months and then years. It always sort of bothered me. And I kind of, I felt hurt about this. I felt like I was sort of being excommunicated or castigated. When I heard he passed away, it, it really, it really kind of tore me up inside because I really thought that there would be a day uh, pretty soon in which I would just wake up in the morning and write this email and say, hey man, you know, it's also stupid. Let's just go have a drink. I love you. I miss you. Uh, and, and let go of all this. And he had a heart attack on December 31st and, and never recovered from it. And it just left me realizing what should have been obvious all along, but but which I hope would benefit anyone 
listening, we don't have time for petty bullshit. We don't have time for this, for these fights. Even if you think they're about significant things, even if you think you're completely right, even if you feel hurt, even if you feel you're hurt or justified, if there's someone in your life right now who you're a little bit estranged from, who you have issues with, who you may be troubled by, but who you genuinely love, who you want in your life, don't, don't wait another second. Just, just pick up that phone or that email and just, you know, reach out to them. And, you know, Todd was one of the most incredible, generous, warm people I've ever met. I'll tell one little story that I told on the Take One podcast. That the moment I knew I was really in the presence of someone special, I, I had not known him so well. And it was the time for the students to present their research proposal. And we went to this, you know, crummy little student cafeteria on campus. And I um, presented this proposal, which I thought would please him because I knew he was a sociologist and I knew he was someone who was, um, you know, interested in economics. So I, I presented this proposal that seemed to be very kind of grown up. And he listened to me speak and he actually listened, which is not common, you know, not just for professors in general, but like for, for people of his stature, people who'd written big books and, and sort of were frequently on television, really listened to me. And then he looks at me as I was done talking and says, I only have one question for you. I said, yeah. He's like, do you care about any of this shit? And, you know, the right thing to do would have been to say, of course, I am very passionate about the economic implications of the industry. But like, I sensed that he was actually asking me to tell the truth. So I said, nah, <laughs> not, not at all. He said, why, why, did you, why did you write this? And I was like, well, because I thought that's what graduate students are supposed to do, this kind of high-minded. It's like, no, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out there and find something you're actually passionate about. And I did, and I, I couldn't be more grateful. It, it set me off on my entire kind of intellectual journey and, and growth. And he was just a wonderful, warm, generous, brilliant man who I'll miss dearly. May his memory be a blessing. Also, uh, Todd Gitlin was a, a tablet columnist and a writer of many books, including one that was important to my own doctoral work as it happens, uh, his book, his memoir and history of the 1960s. So uh, Todd Gitlin dead at 79 and he will be missed. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia and our associate producer is Quinn Waller. You get that executive, regular, and associate. That's the hierarchy. These are the three flavors. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. We are headed back out on the road. In fact, I will tell you that right now we have two live shows, either booked or a booking. Which means that if you want to book us for a live show, get in touch with our director of partnerships, Tanya Singer. That's tsinger at tabletmag.com. And, you know, make us an offer. We'll, we'll see. We'll try to get to yes. You know, you'll, you'll say something, we'll say something, and we'll try to make it happen. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme, as ever, by Steve Barton. And rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi David L. Lockett of Beit Shalom Congregation in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Minnetonka's home for Jews and Mention. I just made that up. Now they have a now they have a slogan if they want to put something on their website. We come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Mm-hmm.